please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of my favorite professors in uh, Bible college was the department chair of pastoral studies. And I was helping him film a series of videos on the nature of pastoral ministry and whatnot. And he was asked this question. Do you think it's possible to lead a church and not run into any kind of conflict? To which he responded, yeah, I think it's possible if everybody in the church is dead. Now, he was not wrong in one sense about that assessment because if you've spent more than five minutes in a local church, you know that conflict abounds even in Christian churches. It is very common that uh, after being converted, when believers come to church, they have a very rosy-eyed view of what church is going to be like. A lot of people believe that because a church hosts a congregation of saints, there will be near utter perfection in the relationships and in the decisions of the church. And this view commonly leads people to disappointment and discouragement, especially when they discover those things out firsthand. A lot of new believers leave churches because of unresolved conflicts, because they have been wronged. And Maybe they actually have been. The truth is that though churches exist as outposts of the kingdom of heaven, though they're filled with the visible people of God, though they strive to obey scriptural commandments, churches are crowded with sinful people. We as Christians, we are enigmas. We are a mess of both saint and sinner simultaneously. And local churches are likewise paradoxical. Here we experience glorious praise and worship. Uh, we, we honor the Lord. We cling to sound doctrine. We recognize the gospel of grace. And yet also there exists among us bitterness and anger and resentment and a lack of love and all of those things. And when conflict ensues, if you trace the origins of that, no matter the nature of the conflict, you can be assured Sin stands at the root of all conflict. It's just the nature of what conflict is. And our own church is not exempt from this. We are not exempt from the existence of conflict. If you attending here have not yet been offended, sinned against, off-put, angered, or whatever else by a fellow believer, do not be surprised when it comes because it most certainly will. And I don't say this as a pessimist. I don't say this to give you a poor view of the saints here. I think our church is wonderful. I think we have amazing believers at our church, and yet sin exists. It exists in you and in me and in all of us here. And who among us can say that we have perfectly killed our sin? Who among us can say that we've never sinned against a fellow Christian and we never will again? And then if you, if you even look beyond the issues of sin itself, do you think that Christians have personalities that always mesh really well? Do you think we always agree on strategy and our approach to things? So we should not ex expect, even in the church, to avoid every bit of conflict. We just shouldn't expect that. But this is what we should be concerned with. We should be concerned with how Christians rightly resolve conflicts in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That should be our primary concern. How can we rightly resolve grievances and conflicts in a way that glorifies and honors the Lord? 
Our text this morning is the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6, which, if you're familiar with that, might seem like a bit of an odd choice, because we're going to be talking about lawsuits. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 records Paul's instructions concerning lawsuits. But more broadly, beyond just the lawsuits themselves, he speaks about the disposition that Christians should have towards one another in resolving conflicts. So if you haven't already, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We're going to read through and then pray. And may this text compel us to be thoughtfully intentional about living at peace with other believers. Let's read our text and then pray. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why do you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Father, this morning, please help us, Lord, to grasp what you have spoken in this text. Lord, please teach us how to rightly resolve conflict and live at peace with one another. Lord, please help me in the preaching of your word Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts of what you have spoken here. Lord, cause us to evaluate our own hearts and our own relationships with believers. May you use this for good and for the sanctification of the saints, Lord. Be honored this morning as we look to your word for counsel. In your name we pray, amen. So to give some context about our text this morning, we have to understand what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul addresses a grotesque and vile immorality that was evidently permitted amongst the Corinthian Christians. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. A man has his father's wife, seemingly referring to his stepmother. So there was a member of the Corinthian church committing blatant and overt sexual sin and not even a regular kind, a grotesque kind of sexual sin with a near member of his family. Not only was that dishonoring to himself and his father, but it was dishonoring to the church. The reason was because the church permitted it among themselves. They endured this kind of sinful action. So Paul advises the church later on in the chapter, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And in verses 12 through 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is those inside the church. I'm sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 5, and thus the instruction of the Holy Spirit, was to excommunicate the one boldly sinning and in a state of unrepentance. And he says expressly 
it falls to the congregation of the saints to judge those inside the church. This gives us really important context when moving into our chapter this morning. It is the task of Christians to judge those inside the church. God has given the local church a responsibility to manage and judge believers. With that in mind, continue on to the first verse of our text this morning. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul introduces his concern for the Corinthian church. They're taking their grievances between one another before unbelievers, the unrighteous, in order to be resolved. Now, there is something oddly missing from this. Uh, Paul does not address the most obvious concern. He does not address that grievances exist between believers. He doesn't mention that. Conflict in this section does not concern Paul as much, as much as Christians taking their problems before unbelieving courts and authorities. The people of Christ commit plenty of grievances against one another. Some are very grievous. Some are really not that big of a deal. There are some grievances that are blatant sins, like a man sleeping with his stepmother. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have minor personality clashes. Paul here is not expecting a perfect church without conflict or without grievances. He's just not expecting that. He concerns himself more so with how those grievances are managed. The truth is, grievances and conflicts occur. They do. They will in the future. Yet there are still expectations, expectations for how a Christian acts in the midst of conflict. I think a lot of times when we experience conflict with someone, it's almost like our brains give us a free license to act however we want. Just because sin is involved, either us sinning against someone else or someone else sinning against us, does not mean that we can ignore how Christians ought to act. We deal with conflict as a Christian, as one who seeks to honor the Lord. And so, even in the midst of a clash, and even in the midst of a conflict, mature Christians first consider what will most honor and glorify God. What will most please him? That is the thinking that we should have in the midst of church conflict. The error of these Corinthians was taking a dramatic grievance before unbelievers to be settled. Now, quite honestly, most of our conflicts are not going to be this dramatic. We often don't take one another to court. It does happen sometimes, but it's not the most frequently experienced conflict. But notice this. I think this is really helpful and interesting. Paul rebukes how Corinthian Christians dealt with grievances against other Corinthian Christians, both a part of the same local church. Now, while the manner of settling their dispute was dishonoring to God, we should note that these Christians stuck it out in the same Christian community. Honestly, when, when most people in our age experience a conflict, what do they do? They get out, they, they leave, they, they just drop the church. There's no sense in many people's minds of perseverance and endurance and long-suffering and seeking godly resolutions. It's just 
frustration and abandonment. Let this be an encouragement for us here. Paul does not correct the Corinthians by saying, listen, you guys had a grievance. Get out of the town. Go to another church. Just, just leave, and then you can kind of start over fresh. No, he says, instead of going to a secular court, you should have gone before believers to settle your dispute. That's how you should have handled this. You should have stuck things out, not bailed when things get difficult, settle it among other believers. And that should be helpful for us, a guide for us. We ought not ditch our local church at the first sign of trouble, which is far too common. Christians, battle it out. Fight for unity. Persevere in the context of a local church. And when there are issues, seek to resolve it in the midst of Christian community. Let's continue on to verses two through three. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul's utter bewilderment that believers in Corinth took such conflicts before a secular court are not immediately discussed right here. He doesn't directly confront that. What he does instead is he presents an argument to demonstrate the absolute absurdity of what the Corinthians were doing, of of their ridiculousness in seeking resolution before a secular court. He says, do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? What the apostle is doing is he is arguing from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if the world one day will be judged by us, all of us, we are to sit in judgment over the world, then are we really that incompetent that we can't manage smaller level conflicts now? This is far more difficult and complicated and wide-reaching than this. If we are to do this, can we not do this? Now, Paul kind of breezes over exactly what he means when he says we are to judge the world. It's kind of like he throws that in there and we're like, we're to judge the world. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know that. (laughs) So he doesn't actually explain precisely what he means by we will judge the world. He's using it as proof of his larger point. And so naturally, there are many theories about exactly what this means and how this will play out. Uh, A couple touch points for verses that might be helpful in kind of understanding what he's talking about. Jude references the idea that the Lord will come with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. Jesus promises in the Gospel of Matthew that his disciples will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Elsewhere in the Bible, there are lots of places where language is given that talks about Christians co-reigning with Christ which presumably reigning indicates a kind of authority to judge. Consider Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, this wondrous image painted of eternity. That chapter says this, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Likewise, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 12 says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Consider how amazing this is for a second, just on a a different level. 
Jesus secured for us a future resurrection. He's cleansed us. He's forgiven us on the cross. He has given us every good thing in salvation that we have. But it's not only that we are made right with God, that we have peace with God. He also has secured for us a dominion over renewed creation. It's not just that we become neutral. We, we have this job, this task, this role in eternity to come through the work of Christ. That is a remarkable grace of the gospel. Part of eternal life, part of communion with God is being his regents, those who are given authority and dominion over the earth. Psalm 8 says of humanity and ultimately of Jesus, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Sin corrupted this design, this idea of us having dominion over the works of God's hands. The sin-infused ground rebelled against its rightful master, us, even as we rebelled against our rightful master. And yet Jesus fixes both of those problems. He reclaims this dominion. And so in Christ, you and I and all the saints of God are to be kings and judges over God's uncorrupted and renewed creation. It is in Paul's mind when he says, how then can you not manage your own grievances? Part of the gospel is that you're saved to reign. You can't deal with your petty little issues on your own. You have to shame the church before the world. Spirit's work of sanctification prepares us for the task of rightful dominion and co-reigning with Christ. And so how shameful is it that the Corinthians go to the unregenerate for help with this particular issue? This principle applies to us as well, not just the church in Corinth. We will judge the world. And so we should be ashamed if we cannot manage smaller issues, conflicts among ourselves. Paul then continues and says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? You got to admit, you know, you're going through and you're like, we're going to judge the world? Oh, okay. And then you continue on. He's like, do you not know we're to judge angels? You're kind of like, actually, I didn't. Can you, you care to elaborate a little bit more on that? And he doesn't. That's all we got. We don't know exactly what it means that we are to judge angels. Yet Paul is using this in the same way he used the other argument, right? You know, the Bible speaks about angels that are kept in chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Could those be the angels that we sit in judgment over? Perhaps. But regardless, the point is clear. How majestic and great are these beings that we are to sit over in judgment? What a wonderful and terrible task to judge beings of a higher nature than ourselves. And yet, can we not even manage these lowly earthly affairs? Those beings are so much greater than us. We can't manage conflict. Christians ought to be competent and able to manage issues like this, especially especially considering the truths of our future roles as kings and judges. And so, church, we must learn to use one another to resolve conflicts. We must learn to trust one another's judgment and grow in our own ability to discern and be wise and judge rightly. Let's continue on verses four through six. So if you have such cases, 
Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul reiterates his prior point. Why bring these conflicts between those who have no standing in the church? He says that this shames, that it shames the believers in Corinth. Can it be that there's no one wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? No one wise enough among you. Wisdom is one of those categories that we just don't often think in in kind of Western Christianity. We think in terms of guilt, right and wrong. We don't often think in terms of wisdom and folly. Yet the Bible has much to say about wisdom. In fact, there are entire books in the Bible, in the canon, that are called wisdom literature. Wisdom applies knowledge in our lives. It is the power of discernment, of right dealing, of fairness, of interpreting words and actions and and understanding the ways of the world. Wisdom provides a godly framework for how to live in a way that pleases God, in a way that knows true justice and godly equity. It is eminently practical and grants a right perception and proper criteria for making decisions and casting judgments. Proverbs often repeats this refrain, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It also says that fools, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it is for this reason that Paul expresses utter astonishment that the saints in Corinth don't consider anyone to be wise enough to settle their disputes. If the only way to be wise is to fear the Lord, then why would you go before those who don't fear the Lord seeking right wisdom? Paul rightly expresses astonishment at this and shame. Christians should be wise. Wise. It is an expectation for the saints of God that we grow in wisdom. If there is no man among us, us, Mission Church, that is wise enough to settle disputes, it would be to our great shame. And so here is a call for wisdom, a call to gain wisdom and to value wisdom. Growing in wisdom, however, is not just a matter of hoping that it happens by doing nothing. You have to understand, we are paddling our boats in the stream of the foolish, Our lives are utterly saturated, saturated by the bombardment of complete, absolute folly. If there is anyone who is to be wise among us, then we must take care to understand how the folly of the world influences us. Because if we are thoughtlessly influenced by the world, then we will assuredly drift towards the ever-present cliff of folly. Forget a quiet life of working with your hands. Forget a focused attention on that which matters. The world tells us to fill our brains with constant, constant frivolities, to be utterly and completely obsessed in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts with things that do not matter at all. If the productions of the world, music and media and movies saturate our mind, then can we hope 
to avoid being influenced by their folly. If any among us seek to be wise, then we must, we must resist the tantalizing pull of the world in all its various forms. We cannot grant our minds to be oversaturated with foolish things and then expect that we'll grow in wisdom. Proverbs tells us that Lady Folly is loud. She's seductive. She knows nothing. Proverbs says that she says, Lady Folly says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. But he that goes to her does not know that the dead are there with her, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The world careens down the road as a car without brakes, quickly approaching disaster. And regardless of whether that disaster is natural or the supernatural judgment of the God, if you hope to be wise, you must cut off the corrupting reach of the foolishness of the world. Paul expects Christians to be wise and to let wisdom help manage the conflicts that we experience. But this applies to far more than just conflict. Wisdom from God, given through his spirit in his word, applies to a host of various areas of the Christian life. Therefore, wisdom in the church is a powerful tool. When Paul blasts the Corinthians for turning to secular help amidst conflict, conflict, we we need to let this instruct us, not just in the arena of conflict, but in other areas as well. When you need things, church, turn to other believers. Turn to the church. Is there no one among us wise enough to settle problems? But, but not just problems. What if we need advice? What if we need help? Where do we go then? Do we go to the world? Do we go to Google? <laughs> you go to the church. You go to those who fear the Lord and have wisdom. If you have a problem in your marriage, go to a faithful and mature brother who can mediate between you and give you sound wisdom and good advice. If you need advice, turn to the wise among us and ask for wisdom. If there's a more burdensome issue, then come to the elders, ask for guidance and aid. Do not turn to the secular world every time you need advice and mediation and help. Don't first look to the world for counsel and instruction and correction. Don't rob one another of the blessed opportunity of getting to show kindness and care and compassion and love towards one another by immediately going off and turning to the world. With all of this in mind, let us turn our attention back to conflict. Paul expects believers to manage their problems with one another. He he clearly has in his mind a specific paradigm of conflict resolution that is not being followed. He's chiding them. You're, You're not doing as you ought to you have grievances against one another, meaning there is in his mind an ideal way to manage conflict. There really are only two categories of conflicts that we need to figure out how to manage. One, sin issues. Two, everything else. Those are the only two categories of conflicts that we really will experience, and so we need to evaluate how to manage each one in turn. So what should we do If a fellow Christian sins against us, how should a Christian rightly respond? What should we do? Should we harbor bitterness in our hearts? 
Should we complain about that person to everyone that we talk to? Should we keep a record of wrongs? Should we ignore them? Should we run away so that we never have to interact with that person again? Now, I say this, we all sit here and be like, of course not, that's not what we should do. What we should do is far more obvious. And yet, have these not become the tried and true methods of dealing with sin in the church? Has this not become the standard for how we manage sin against one another? Brothers and sisters, the Lord gave us instructions on how to respond to sin. He he gave it to us. We don't have to wonder and we don't have to be innovative. We have to obey. And this is what he told us to do. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If your brother sins against you, go confront him. Go confront him and tell him his fault. That is the correct response. And if that person ignores your confrontation and does not repent, what should we do then? Do we gossip then? Nope. Jesus continues in Matthew 18. Then we take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's very simple. We confront directly. If they don't repent, we confront with a number of people. If they still refuse to turn from their sin, then bring it before the church, eventually resulting in excommunication. This is how the Corinthians should have acted towards the man sleeping with his stepmom. This is what they should have done. By confronting his sin and escalating the severity of the confrontation, this provides a paradigm for godly confrontation within the church. That's what we do. If we want to confront sin, we directly confront it. We follow Jesus' commands in Matthew 18. Okay, so are there any other options? Well, yes, actually, there is one other option of how we deal with someone sinning against us. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let love cover a multitude of sins and drop it. Drop it. Let it go. That's option number two. That does not mean you stuff it down real deep and then open up that chest and pull out your anger when it's convenient. That does not mean that you just avoid ever interacting with that person ever again. That does not mean that you tell everybody about that person's error but them. That means that you move forward in fellowship and firmly resolve and commit to let it go, to drop it, to let it go, to love those, to love those who wrong you by being patient and kind and by not keeping a record of wrongs in your heart. Love them by bearing all things and believing all things, by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Love them by enduring hardship on their behalf. Forgive and move forward even if you were truly wronged, even if you don't deserve, I'm sorry, even if they don't deserve your mercy. The Bible tells us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. So those are your two options. Brother sins against you, you either confront or you let love cover over it. That is it. Those are your options. Any other reaction has no grounding in scriptural commands. 
Do not, O church, invent new ways of managing conflict. Submit to what the Lord has commanded we do. We should not just leave a church or stir up division or factions or gossip about it to everyone. That is in no way honoring to God. Deal with sin in a biblical manner, realizing that you yourselves are beset with weaknesses. Don't permit someone else's sin to spur you on to sin. Now, that's category one. Someone sins against you. What do we do with category two? Not a sin issue. Well, what if we disagree on ministry strategy? What if we disagree on cultural differences? What if we just have a distinct enough personalities to not get along? What do we do then? The exact same thing. That's what we do. The exact same thing. We can either confront it directly as a God-honoring Christian or let love cover over it. While a direct confrontation would not move up the chain of escalation to church discipline if nothing was resolved, direct confrontation remains an honoring way to deal with these problems. But understand this. Nowhere in all of sacred scripture have we been given permission to gossip or spread seeds of animosity or harbor bitterness. Not in one place. Church, if you run into conflict, don't be worldly. Who, I think that we inherit managing conflict from the world. We don't, we're not thoughtful about it, and so we just passively absorb the way the world handles things sometimes. Who cares how the world, foolish world, handles differences? Who cares how they slander one another? Who cares how they drop one another like a rock and cancel people they don't like? We are the church of God. We are to be different. We are those that have been called, justified, and sanctified by the work of Jesus. We are those united in Christ and united to one another by the Holy Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We do not act like the world does. And so we don't treat one another the way the world does. You know the saying, they will know we are Christians by our love, our love for one another, chiefly. If anyone here feels wronged and then persists in reacting the way the world does, then may we be rebuked. Men, if you experience conflict now or in the future, listen, be men. Don't be wimpy. Be direct and straightforward. Rebuke well and receive rebuke well. Don't play games. Don't be dumb. Be men. Confront if it needs confrontation, and do it with the spirit of gentleness, aiming for restoration. Women, act like a Christian. Do not stir up division. Don't dishonor your king by harboring resentment and bitterness. Stop it with the vile gossip. Have a quiet and submissive attitude as the Lord instructs. Christians, we must stop thinking like pagans, when it comes to conflict. We need to think like those who fear the Lord and value glorifying him above all else. If there remains a grievance that cannot be solved individually, what do you do? You bring it before those in the church. Now, perhaps our first inclination is not to sue one another when things go wrong, but I bet our first inclination is not to come to the church for mediation. 
I think part of this is due to our poor ecclesiology, our poor theology of the church. We have to understand church exists for more than a Sunday social club. Church is more than a tradition. It is more than a good influence for your children. It is more than a building. It's more than an institution. Church is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. It is an outpost or an embassy of heaven. And what happens here among believers ought to demonstrate the qualities and characteristics of God's kingdom. That's one reason why we must judge those inside the church, why we must purge the evil from among us, as Paul instructed in the last chapter, because church is an expression of the heavenly realities of God's people. When we find in it a person who is not a member of God's kingdom, then we must purify the church and and, and present a pure expression of God's people. Church is not a place primarily for unbelievers, but for believers. It is the gathering of the saints. It's for our edification, for our collective worship. When, When we sit here on Sundays and we listen to whoever's preaching and we sing songs together, we're not just consuming content. We're not just consumers. We're mingling with fellow citizens of heaven. We are being reminded of the advance of God's kingdom. We're being compelled to greater holiness and affectionate worship of God. We are an expression of the gospel of those saved by grace. It is is a sermon in and of itself just that Christians gather on Sundays we share in the fellowship of the saints. We, we recognize that we're united into one body by the blood of Christ and by the presence of the Spirit of God in us. We've got to understand church is an absolutely, completely essential function of the Christian's life. And so, because of all this, the Holy Spirit has given to the church everything needed for the Christian's life. He has established among us evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The church is given to sanctify the saints, to encourage them, to equip them for everything needed. And if there's a problem, that problem is dealt with in the church, in the assembly of the saints, among those whom the Lord has given us. Do not, brothers and sisters, have an anemic view of what church is and therefore neglect the joys of caring for one another in the context of the local congregation. It is Paul's view of the role of local churches that causes him, in part, to be so appalled that they take the issues outside the church. We have a unique relationship with one another, and so how we handle conflicts with each other reflects our status before God and our unity in Christ expressed in the local church. Let's Continue on, look at the last couple of verses in the section, verses seven through eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul concerns himself regularly with petty divisions throughout the epistle to the Corinthians. Lawsuits clearly indicate division. No matter who wins, Paul says the lawsuit has been lost. Because for Paul, winning is not successfully making a claim against a brother. It's something far more. Thus, he says, 
if you even go and sue one another, you have already lost. There are kind of three reasons, I think, why suing one another would be a loss in Paul's mind. First, it indicates division exists in the church. Second, going to secular lawyers for resolution shows a lack of maturity and wisdom in the church. Third, lawsuits do not put the church in a good light for outsiders. Then Paul, in the next little bit, gives one of the most helpful statements, I think, in the New Testament about our general attitude and disposition towards one another. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? To summarize that, Paul says, would it not be better for you to take the hit than to go before a secular court? Would not injustice for you be preferable than justice before an ungodly court? That is a wild statement. Unity among brothers, a right display of Christian charity and humility is higher priority for Paul than everyone getting what they deserve. What an absolutely provocative statement, especially in a world that is so obsessed with so-called justice like ours is. Here's the truth. Justice will be done. Justice will be done one way or another. You and I are not the ones primarily responsible for making sure justice must be done because whether by Christ on the cross or by punishment on the day of the Lord, justice will be doled out on all who exist. And so if your concern is just making sure that everyone who wronged you gets what they deserve, it isn't necessary. The Lord will judge the just and the unjust, that's certain. And so, Paul says, why not just rather suffer wrong? Why not just be wronged? Why not rather be the one to lose? Someone has to lose out because of a conflict. Why do we not think like this? Why don't we just say, why not me? Why don't I walk away the one who's been knocked down a notch? Is it because it's unjust? It's unfair? Is it because we don't deserve it? Is it because we're the one that's right? Is it because we're concerned about our own interests or opinions or desires or strategies or reputations? Why? If the reason is anything other than that God may be glorified, I may be sanctified, and our church may be unified, then what are we doing? What are we doing? If we are continuing conflicts for our own sakes, what are we doing? Do we have so great a need to be right? Do we have so great a need to make sure that everyone else gets what they deserve? Do we have so great a need to not practice genuine sacrificial love? John Owen spoke about this a bit. Here's what he said. If you are angry, annoyed, rejoicing, estranged from the one who has done you wrong, you are a partner with him in the evil. You are a partner with him in the evil instead of helping him. What if God were angry every time you gave him cause and struck you every time you provoked him? Listen, one does not open this book, go from the beginning, go to the end, close the cover and say, I understand, I should most, poo would most pursue whatever helps advance my cause. That's what I should do. <laughs> Absolutely not. The Bible persistently presents an attitude of selflessness. It's better for me to take the hit on this one. It's better for my ego to be brought down a notch, deserved or not. Listen, you might be in a particular conflict now or in the future where it is totally just for you to pursue vindication. 
But ask this question, what will sanctify you more? What will glorify your Father in heaven more? Why use this opportunity to stroke my ego when I could sacrifice, take a loss, and learn to be merciful towards others as God was merciful towards me in Christ Jesus? Which would you rather encourage? The need for self-vindication or humility and sacrifice and an abundance of grace and mercy. Church conflicts can regularly persist for months, sometimes even years. And constantly holding things against fellow Christians can result in deep-seated bitterness and anger. Listen, if you have anger and bitterness in your heart towards another believer, that will act like poison to you. It will turn your heart cold towards one another. We are commanded to love one another. How can we love each other earnestly if there is bitterness filling our veins? It is a good thing that the Lord does not harbor bitterness towards us, isn't it? When lengthy conflicts persist, why do we continue them? Why do we persist in fueling the fire of conflict? What will sanctify us more? Not clinging to a grudge, not needing to be vindicated or proven correct, but sacrificing and laying down your desires as an act of love and mercy. You know, we're commanded to be imitators of God. And a lot of times I think we think these verses exist for cool catchphrases that we can put on posters and stick on our walls. But listen, that's a command. We are to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. God has shown you mercy. So show mercy even to those who deserve none. To the one who forgives much, much will be forgiven. And then beyond what might be preferable for you personally consider, is it not better to lay down your own desires and strong emotions for the sake of Christian unity? The Lord has permitted conflicts in our midst. What an amazing opportunity to practice demonstrating enduring and sacrificial love. So why work so hard to the point of damaging harmony with other believers and shaming the church before the world? Why work so hard to make sure that we're not the ones with a loss? Our concern must be with what pleases our master and savior. We must be concerned with the souls and sanctification of our brothers and sisters. And so pursuing divisive attitudes for the, self, for the sake of self exhibits immaturity and selfishness. Church, we must care more about the expressed unity here than our personal vendettas and even our personal status and reputation. Now, you have to understand, I'm, this, does this assertion tell us to never confront sin, to steal a line from Paul? By no means, okay? Correction and rebuke and exhortation and admonishment are given to the church, are given for believers to employ. I'm not saying don't confront sin. Do confront sin if it needs confrontation, but for the sake of the sinner, for the sake of the purity of the Lord's people. When it must be done, do it. Rebuke sin. Take those things before the church. If we confront them and they repent, praise God. However, if all is settled, if, there, if all the issues have been covered, if there is peace, if people have repented and there still remains an injustice, and the only thing that that affects is you and your pride, then why not rather be the one to take a loss? Let the injustice fall on you instead of a brother or a sister. Show love by taking that on yourself. Paul's teaching here 
it is important to note, does not apply to the non-Christian. He speaks specifically about the relationships between believers and uh, other believers. And thus, if someone has no good standing in a local church, someone says, I'm a Christian, and there is no church that can say, yep, Joe right there, Joe, we, we affirm Joe's faith. We will, we will manage things with Joe. If you encounter someone like that, they don't have a local church, then you have no other recourse but through secular means. And this provides each one of us yet another reason to bind ourselves to a local individual church and commit to it for the sake of mediation and conflict management. Our Lord Jesus took upon himself the sins of all of us. He himself knew no sin, yet he bore our sins, the punishment for them, the, the ridicule, the blasted reputation on our behalf. He absorbed our junk. You want to talk about injustice? That's injustice. Philippians 2, I think, communicates a perfect blending of what Christ has done and what we should do concerning one another. This is what Philippians 2 commands believers. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example for this. He was like a sponge. He took on himself what was not his to take. He took the hit. He got knocked down because he loved us. We ought to emulate that. We should take the hit. We should get knocked down for the sake of loving one another. That's why Romans 12 tells us to, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this attitude of sacrifice, both in Christ and in Christians, will make little sense to you if you yourself are not a Christian. Because for what reason will you, if you're not a believer here this morning, why would you not take every chance to advance your own cause? What cause has man to lay down that would be best, that which would be best for himself? And even if it seems haughty for doing so, this is the default thinking of man, one of selfishness and self-interest. But this Jesus that we speak of was one whose refrain was not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. Jesus gave himself up for his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel itself is the account of the self-sacrifice and humiliation of God. Jesus took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He committed no sin, meaning any, any wrong done to him was a complete injustice. And yet the greatest injustice was done on the cross. He was murdered and crucified, but not without meaning. He died to cleanse and forgive the sins of all those who believe in him. And so here this morning, if you resist and persist in rejecting the offer of mercy and grace offered to you, if you so despise this act of love that Christ has shown for you, you will be condemned. Throw yourself, if you are not a believer, to the foot of the cross Confess no reason that God should accept you, but Christ alone. Trust that his blood cleanses sin, forgives you, and that his righteousness is counted to you by faith, and that will be enough. 
you will be saved. Repent from your sins, turn in faith to the Lord and be saved. And, and oh, church, that our demonstration of mercy in this congregation would be cause for unbelievers among us to turn to Christ in recognition of our love for one another. May the Lord be honored among his people in this way. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you our often divisive natures. We confess to you that we do not treat one another as we ought to. You have revealed in your word that we love because you first loved us, and yet we have been lax in our duties. Please, O oh Father, by your Spirit, fill our hearts with love for one another. Cause us to seek the interests of others and not ourselves. And Lord, I pray for any conflicts that might ensue in our church or in other churches. Lord, would you bless your people with a sense of unity, a sense of genuine, true unity. Would you help us to honor you in how we confront sin? Would you help us to have courage and boldness to confront sin head on when it needs confrontation? Lord, give us the humility we need to let love cover over a multitude of sins when that is appropriate. Father, please grant us great wisdom to know how we ought to manage conflicts. Father, we pray for peace in our church. We pray for peace among brothers and sisters. Remind us, Lord, of the mercy that you have shown us and cause us to imitate you and to be imitators of you. Thank you for your mercy when we fail. Thank you that you are kind to us even though we don't deserve it. Please forgive us and help us in managing conflict in a way that honors you and pleases you and glorifies you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.